Fashion is a very powerful tool used by influential people. I think fashion is powerful because it is used by powerful people, because it is the front line of identity politics. It's part of how we communicate with each other. So if you have someone who is very much in everyone's kind of eye, who is a role model, you know, if you have Kamala Harris, for example, what she wears, the clothes she puts on her body are going to become really important because she is really important. But on their own, I don't think a white pantsuit is so important. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Vanessa Friedman is the fashion director and chief fashion critic at The New York Times. She arrived there after pioneering roles covering fashion at The Financial Times, and that was the first ever role she filled in there. In Style, Vogue, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Elle. I linked to an overview of her life on fashionista.com to get more of her more than impressive background at the pinnacle of fashion. I met her through previous guest, Jeffrey Madoff. She spoke at his class on creative careers at Parsons. Right off the bat, she talks about reducing consumption, which I differentiate reducing from reusing and recycling, which most people jump to, reusing and recycling. But those I consider tactical. Reducing is strategic, harder to get at first, but leads to easier life and work. More importantly, it's more effective. But like previous guest Sally Singer at Vogue, Vanessa also bikes around New York City, I would guess not so common in fashion. I have to say, I was a bit awkward in this conversation, as I don't know the fashion world, but you can hear from her that sustainability is catching on in fashion, or I should say responsible fashion, to use her terms if I understood her right. Barely so far, not a whole lot of action. And as she points out, there's a lot more to do, but in some places at least, authentically and growing. Now I bring you Vanessa. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Vanessa Friedman. Vanessa, how are you doing? I'm great. It's nice to talk to you. Glad to have you here. And so, Pat, longtime listeners who've heard my episode with Jeff Madoff, I met you through him. I, I guess it's the second time you spoke at his class that I saw. And mm-hmm. there have been a few people. And I got to say, I feel naive in some ways that before looking at sustainability from the point of view of people in the fashion world, I didn't think my predisposition coming from a science background is, oh, they don't really get the science. That's not really that important. And I think that was a very naive view. And I also think I missed missed how much you were speaking about sustainability, even unprompted in that conversation. It's my picture more or less from the outside is that it's it's a very important issue in in an incredibly influential field. It's become very important. You know, I first started thinking about it and sort of talking about it back in 2009. And at that stage, it was really not very present in fashion as a topic of conversation, you know, either publicly or within companies. You know, we were still like, there were tons of jokes about green being the new black and people still called it like green fashion. And, you know, there was a lot of confusion about language, which there still is, frankly, you know, about like what was eco and what was environmental and what was organic and what was vegan and whether it was all the same thing, which of course it isn't. But, you know, in the last decade, there's been enormous progress, I think, within the fashion industry in terms of grappling with this. And, you know, in the beginning, I remember talking to this guy who worked at Caring, you know, which is the big French conglomerate that owns Gucci and Bottega Veneta and Saint Laurent. And he had been the head of communications for the chief executive of the group. And he told me 
very excitedly, probably around 2010 or something, that he had switched over to become the new chief sustainability officer. And I remember saying to him, like, oh, that's great. And thinking to myself, God, this poor guy, (laughs) he's been totally (laughs) sidelined. And now, of course, sustainability really is at the heart of what caring does. So I think, you know, there has been a real progression from kind of the outer rim to the inner circle. And maybe I jumped into fashion too quickly, because as you were talking about, you've been in this for well over 10 years. I'm sure you've answered this question many times, but can you give us a bit of your background? Because it's, I would have thought you fashion people come through fashion and you came through journalism, I guess. You came through. Yeah, I came through. I came through writing and magazines. I started as a culture reporter, really, and general interest reporter, uh, writing for places like The New Yorker and Vogue and um, moved to England in 1996 and kind of fell into fashion by mistake. Someone saw I had worked at fashion magazines, assumed that when I was a fashion person and lo and behold, as someone who was desperate for any kind of employment, I was a fashion writer. (laughs) And so I really became... I got my first all-fashion job only in 2003, which seems like a long time ago now, but it's about halfway through my total career arc, I guess, to this point. Was that Financial Times? That was at the Financial Times, yeah. I became their first fashion editor. Yeah, that's. I mean, it, it feels like that's unexpected, but looking back, it makes sense. Was it really part of making that position, or did they find you? Did they create it and then find you? They decided to have a fashion editor. They'd never had one before. I think they finally realized that it was a big enough industry that it merited their coverage and and also that their readers actually cared about this topic and were kind of interested in this topic. And so they might as well break it out into, you know, a page or two of its own. And at that point, I had written a couple of fashion stories for them. I had been a kind of contract writer. And I just had my second child and was looking to change jobs. And I think, honestly, like it was lucky timing. And I was one of the few fashion writers they remembered. (laughs) So they were like, well, give it to her. And the title you have now at the New York Times has the word critic in it. And I I think of writing about something and criticizing it or feel like they're two different things. Do you have different hats that you wear at the same position? Or is is that a natural thing? I have about 10 hats. Okay. Um, Which, which I think is partly a product of having come from a British newspaper where you are, you know, writing and editing and often doing columns all at the same time. That's a kind of UK structure. American publications tend to silo off their different specialties, but I generally think you are better at each if you have practice with the other, mm-hmm. you know, so you, you learn to work different muscles. So I do editing and I do formal criticism, you know, of runway shows and a lot about public figures and kind of the use of image in the public conversation. And then I do some straightforward reporting. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to go into that for a bit about the influence. Fashion is a very influential field. Is that right? Because to me, certainly when I was studying physics, it was outside of my purview. And when I started my first couple of companies, it was, uh, it wasn't something I really thought about. I just knew that I wasn't particularly fashionable, but Fashion is a very powerful tool used by influential people. Fashion is an influential tool. So I I was thinking fashion is an industry, but fashion is also a way of expressing oneself. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to me, you know, it's like saying, you know, people sometimes say to me, oh, you're so like, you're a very powerful critic. I'm only a powerful critic because the New York Times is a very powerful platform. You know, I think fashion is powerful because it is used by powerful people. You know, because it is the front line of 
identity politics. It's part of how we communicate with each other. And so if you have someone who is very much in everyone's kind of eye, who is a role model, you know, if you have Kamala Harris, for example, you know, what she wears, the clothes she puts on her body are going to become really important because she is really important. But on their own, I don't think a white pantsuit is so important. So it's, a, okay, it's a tool used by influential people. Or is it, is it inevitable that influential people will have, an, will have a fashion statement? Or like I saw her wearing that, the, the white suit, and I thought she probably worked with someone who was like a stylist or something to decide that. Or maybe she just did it on her own. But then there are also people who are very well known who probably don't think twice about it and they just wear whatever they wear. I think, honestly, if you think that, you are deluding yourself. Every single person who puts clothing on their body, including nudists who choose not to put clothing on their body, are making a decision every day about how they want to present themselves to the world. And that means they are thinking about fashion, period. I guess, I mean, there, there might be levels. Of, I hope I'm not showing too much ignorance on my part, but I would think that there's levels of sophistication or the levels of depth to which people think about it. So, so that if someone doesn't think about it too consciously, I'm not saying that they're not um, thinking about it. Yeah, they're not thinking about it. It's just they're not, they're content with what comes their way or something like that. It, it, they're choosing by not choosing, I guess. I, I, I honestly think, okay, I agree there are different levels of deliberation and right. awareness of the meaning of what you're putting on, but everybody, everybody is thinking about it, whether they acknowledge it or not. You know, when you put on the black sweater that you were wearing this morning, Mm -hmm. there is a reason you chose that sweater, right? There's a reason you're not wearing a jacket. There's a reason you're not wearing a shirt. There's a reason you're not wearing a heavy metal t-shirt. I guess I'm partly thinking to what extent I should put more, should I research more and find out more and and think more about what I do or think differently about what I do selfishly here? Like everybody, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this, right? In Blink, like we all make instantaneous judgments about each other based first on how someone looks, right? We have a whole host of associations that are more or less conscious that attach themselves to clothing, beauty, appearance, all those things. And we are making constant judgments based on that data set, Mm -hmm. right? It's a data set. So how how are issues around the environment, around sustainability, around climate, around pollution and plastic, how are things like that filtering into the decisions that people make of what they wear or where they invest in their companies in, you know, if they're the types of companies we've been talking about? Well, I think right now, you know, one of the, um, one of the things the pandemic has done is make people think a lot harder about any kind of choices they're making, particularly financial and consumptive. And that has put more weight, I think, and, and substance behind the values that maybe attach themselves to a product, including clothing. And between that and the climate crisis, which has also become you know, a much more public part of the conversation, I think issues of sustainability, which is not a word I really like using when attached to fashion anyway, because I think it's very hard to define and also can be very overwhelming. I tend to like the idea of responsible fashion better because I think it's easier for individuals to grapple with that. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's just it's I think it's become a real factor in choosing what to buy, 
how to make something, how to talk about it, you know, how to communicate on it if you're a company and how to decide if you really need something as an individual. Yeah. Oh man, you raised a whole lot of things that I'm going to go on the last thing first of needing something, because I feel like that touches on levels of, of consumption, how much we buy, how much we produce. When you spoke with Jeff a couple of weeks ago, Patagonia came up a lot. And when I think of of producing stuff and, and putting up an ad that says, don't buy this, reduce your consumption. It felt against the grain. How do people in the fashion world look at that? I feel like it goes faster than anything else of like what you just bought, you got to get a new one. You know, Patagonia is a special case for two reasons. You know, one, it is a lifestyle brand, but it's a very specific kind of lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. That's very connected to the outdoors, right? And to the environment, and it's you know deeply embedded in the outdoor rec world, which has a whole set of like values attached to it, you know, that are very specific. And it's also a private company. Mm-hmm. And when you're a private company, you have a leeway to do a lot of things that you can't necessarily do if you're a public company. So like when I was out there, uh, Vincent Stanley was one of the directors. He was on the, on the show. He, when I was out there in Ventura, I, he got me a tour of the place. So I, I went around and it's really, as you said, the the lifestyle brand, it's a lifestyle brand, but the whole company itself is also like that too. I asked them, your suppliers must not like working with you because you're so stringent with them. And they said, on the contrary, they love it because once we pass, once they pass us, everyone will use them. And so they like working with us so they can get that. And I feel like they're looking at stuff that most others aren't yet looking at. I guess now they're starting to look at, I'm not sure of, is it organic cotton? Is it Organic cotton is not necessarily the best cotton. I mean, I think the thing that's so complicated about these questions is that there are so many trade-offs involved in them, right? I mean, like some countries where they're producing, you know, where they're cotton producers to convert their farms to organic growth, you know, is is like incredibly water intensive, you know, or if like, I don't know, or it's like, it's really expensive. It's bad for the, you know, the the farmers. I mean, I just think like, you know, sometimes polyester, like sometimes synthetics are not all terrible. Yeah, I didn't um, mean to pick just organic cotton. I meant they look through the entire life cycle analysis of, of figuring something out and they'll do it based on not just what seems the best, but what their analysis turns out to be the best. And, and they have to go through all these questions that from the outside might seem easy, but they're not. And I think that I would guess that others want to pick up from that of how do we f- figuring those things out themselves? I'm not sure. Yeah. I, like I'm guessing that at some high fashion brand, that I don't really know that much about that my naive thought at first would be they're not going to think about that much, think about those things that much. But what I'm curious about, maybe they are. I think they're thinking about it. I mean, high fashion at least, you know, owns, it tends to own its own supply chain. Mm -hmm. And so they can trace things, you know, certainly to the beginning. Um, One of the issues I think now with, with fashion brands is they, we tend to be very focused on the start of life as opposed to the end of life. Mm -hmm. So they measure products environmental impacts from cradle to gate, right? So as soon as it leaves the store, they're like, oh, done. Uh Can't trace it anymore. And of course, that's only like the first quarter of a product's life, right? So I, you know, what you really want is cradle to grave, right? You want to be able to trace a product until it either gets put into landfill or disaggregated to be remade into something else, right? You know, which which like Nike can do, for example, if they're tracing a sneaker, which then they take back and grind up and make into whatever their like turf is. So I think that they're, you know, for luxury brands or high fashion brands, you know, they are very good at tracing cradle to gate because they do control their supply chain. I think where things get really complicated is with, you know, contemporary brands or mass market brands where, you know, they don't control their supply chain. 
and you get factories that even if they visit the factory, the factory may be actually like, you know, subcontracting to many other factories. And they're not like there's a lot of plausible deniability built into the fashion supply chain that, you know, is potentially negative and problematic. I'm also realizing that you've, am I picking up right that you've thought about this a lot and you've looked around a lot, that this is not like a casual topic for you, sustainability, is it? I've been following it for a while and thinking about it and what it means and how companies are behaving and where the problems lie, you know, since, since 2009. So it's been a while. Is it a passion for you? For you? Is it, I mean, is it like a big area of focus for you? just casually looking at or is it something really? No, I just, I think it's an incredibly important topic period. You know, I mean, I think it's like a, a, it's a global crisis. Like it's, you know, and, and this is my slice of it. You know, this is my part of what is, you know, a, a generational problem that we need to deal with. And, you know, and fashion needs to deal with it. And fashion is an enormous industry, you know, fashion slash retail is an enormous industry. It's an enormous wealth generator and it is enormously polluting. So it has to figure out how to deal with this. Okay, so if it's it's your slice, they have to figure something out. That tells me that you feel like you have to, do you feel like you have to play an active role in it? Is that? I mean, I do a lot of finger wagging, but that's like my role as a critic. <laughs> you do a lot of reporting too. I, I mean, I looked at your recent stuff and I didn't see anything of, the recent stuff didn't seem to be about sustainability, but I didn't go too far back. Um, I've done, as, as an editor, I've done a lot of, um, work on supply chain stories, fashion supply chain stories, particularly, you know, the sort of ill-served workers with Elizabeth Payton, who's a reporter at the Times. And we've been kind of focusing on that area of CSR, which is less perhaps farming related, but still has to do with sustainability. And I did a fair amount on, um, you know, how fashion is marketing itself as sustainability. The listeners didn't see the look on your face. The look looked a bit, if I tell me if I misread it, but the marketing of it wasn't the same as the the practice of it. You know, it just, it, it, beca- it became, I don't know, was it maybe a year ago? It became a really big um, thing during shows to have like a green, like plants in your show or like recycle this in your show. I just, I, I you know, I think it, you shouldn't need to do that. So it sounds, it sounds on the one hand, like they're doing their best. No. It sounds on the one hand like they're look, trying to look like they're doing their best, but not really, maybe also don't really know what to do. No, I think they're trying. I mean, you know, I think you look at some of the really big groups and they're all doing environmental profit and loss statements. You know, they're really measuring their own impact, whether or not they want to share it with the rest of the world is a different question. But I think they're increasingly fluent in these issues and aware of what the stakes are, you know, both for their own profits and for their own impact. And they're very focused on it. I mean, they all want to be carbon neutral. They all claim their shows are carbon neutral. You know, we can debate whether carbon neutrality is a thing. Mm -hmm. If you're just like spending, dumping carbon into the atmosphere and buying trees, like that equation isn't necessarily the same balance out. You know, they're, they're all doing that. Measuring and acting are, well, I don't know if it's much easier. They're measuring, they're seeing what their impact is. Being able to change that could be very challenging. I mean, I mean they're all they're, they're doing lots and lots of material research. I mean, I I, w- I wouldn't at all suggest that they're not doing anything. They really are. They just have a very long way to go. Okay, so I'm hearing some empathy and some sympathy 
mixed with a bit of um, what would the finger wagging be? The pro- maybe they're. I think the biggest issue with fashion, which we've talked about, is is simply the amount of stuff they produce. You know, I think you've got, to, you've got to grapple with that with that side of it, and no one really wants to do that because you want to keep making new stuff that sells. And you feel like if you don't, then the others will. Yeah. And what's the point in us losing money if someone if the same thing is going to happen and someone else is making the money? It feels to me, from a, a leadership perspective, you can have each individual company doing its best, but if the industry doesn't have like a governing body or some above outside the actual companies working on the system, then, well, the way I always put it, if you make every piece of a system more efficient, but you don't change the efficient, the system, if the system pollutes and you make everything more efficient, you pollute more efficiently. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, there, it would be very helpful. And I've said, I've said this since, I don't know, 2000 and, 11, I think it was the second time I used to go to the Copenhagen, I go to often the Copenhagen fashion summit, which is a kind of fashion sustainability summit that started in 2009. And it used to be every other year. So I think it was in 2011, I was there talking and I said, it was time for someone to make a lexicon of sustainability to actually define what these terms meant so that we all knew what we were talking about when we were talking about them, you know, because right now people can say, because there's no kind of accepted measurement for anything. I can say this is a organic or recycled garment and like 10% of its fibers are recycled. Mm-hmm. You know, and someone can say this is a recycled garment and 50% are recycled or 100% are recycled. You know, it just, there, there's very little congruency. And I think that's really hard as a consumer then, you know, to, to parse because how do you make a real judgment on something without doing gigantic amounts of research, which frankly, like who wants to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, some of the CSR reports for these companies are like a hundred pages of, you know, really complicated chemical <laughs> descriptions. And they're just like, you just want to go to sleep. And we all know that's not, you know, the people who want to buy something, they want it really simple and really straightforward and really understandable. Otherwise they're just going to ignore it. So, you know, I still think someone should just make a lexicon that everyone can use. I, I almost feel like the New York Times would be well positioned to do that. No, because we no. report on what other people do. No, so no one's really well positioned. Is anyone really positioned to do well, that? Well, I think, I mean, I said to Copenhagen, they should do it. Can you share what they said? I or, think they said they would think about it or they're okay. working on it or something. So lexicon. Oh, yeah. Last time, oh, I when you were speaking with Jeff, I also asked you about, I don't remember my question so much, but I remember your answer, which is to talk about a few influential people who would wear the same clothes multiple times, mm-hmm. which I presume is a statement of, addressing consumption. And can you say some of what's going on there? And are they deliberately trying to address, you don't have to buy a new piece of clothing every time you go on stage or something like that? Yes, absolutely. No question. You know, Kate Blanchett for when she was head of the the jury at the Venice, Venice Film Festival, you know, which is a highly public role. I think you have to go to every premiere. You know, she wore a um, a garment from her closet that she had already worn every single time. Princess Beatrice got married in her grandmother's wedding dress, I think, or one of her grandmother's dresses. And I think it was Tiffany Haddish, you know, wore the same white Alexander McQueen pantsuit like four times on the red carpet. It was fantastic. You know, and that really is different because there is a huge amount of pressure on celebrities to wear different things every time, partly because they make money doing it. You know, often they have contractual relationships with brands and brands want, you know, effectively their ad on the person. And because it gets them more eyeballs, right? If you've already seen something, you don't necessarily need to post a bazillion pictures of it all over again. 
I guess the first couple of people who do it are going to get the attention because, oh, this is something that hasn't been done before. And then have you gotten a, a, an impression on how people have responded to these things? Were they? I think that people have been incredibly positive about it, you know, like really have welcomed it because frankly, it's exhausting this idea that we should all wear new clothes all the time. Also, it's impractical because no one actually is going to do that unless you're buying, you know, one of these kids who are sort of buying a new $3 dress every weekend from whatever the the website is that they get them from. And, you know, I think it's just, it's it's a better, more thoughtful way to dress. Because the point is not that you're wearing cheap stuff. It's that you, you do what, you know, your grandmother did, my grandmother did. You, you find something that is, you know, has value that's beautifully made, made by somebody in beautiful materials. And you save your money and you spend your money and you get it. And then you take care of it and you keep it and you wear it because it has meaning. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it also, you also mentioned that these celebrities get paid to wear things. And presumably if they're getting paid to wear it, the company paying them or the person paying them is getting more value back than they're paying them, meaning it's driving a lot of sales. I guess it depends how you measure it. Well, if they're, I mean, that flow of money is going to go away, at least for the celebrities, I would guess. That if they're just going to the closet and wearing something they've had before each time, then probably someone's not going to pay them to do that. I'm wondering how it affects them. I mean, you know, people find different ways to make money, right? The reason they're doing that is because films are making, films are less lucrative than they used to be. So you need an alternative income stream. Or you want to make like weird indie films, so you're not going to make blockbuster money from them. So you want an alternative income stream. So you find security through like jewelry deals or shoe deals or dress deals. But it's also a limited number of celebrities, right, who get that. Okay. So it sounds to me like what I often say, people are like, oh, if people stop buying so much stuff, industries are going to go out of business. I'm like, yeah, well, yes. And entrepreneurs will pop up and, and do different things. It's- I don't know if industries will go out of business. Their business model will change. I mean, the problem, you know, if you look at fast, like high fashion, between the explosion of China and this idea that like we should keep buying new stuff all the time, you know, these companies were growing at 20% a year. Now that is a crazy amount of growth. And it was true for, you know, t- over a decade. And then you get, and because they're public, then you get investors who are kind of inured to the idea that this is normal, you know, or this is weird and they think it's normal. And that puts enormous amount of pressure on them to keep, like, keep the cycle going and going and going. I mean, if you go back down to like 7% growth or 6% growth, that is not bad. Mm-hmm. I'm used to think about like population growth, where it's like 1% mm-hmm. is like very high. <laughs> I'm like 7%, it's like extremely high. Fine, right. <laughs> but not compared to 20%. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's, that goes back to what you're talking about, public markets versus or publicly, publicly traded companies versus private companies and Patagonia's. Not just private. It's like yeah. one... And looking at something from sort of quarterly reporting points of view and looking at something from like 10-year growth point of view. Right? Oh, yeah. So Patagonia is, I think, a B Corp. Do you know if that's something? I presume you know about B Corps. Mm-hmm. And is that something that you see moving around and developing in, in the fashion world? There, there are a couple. I, I wouldn't say it's a big trend. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, are people looking to change the system? Or are they trying to change just their own personal, their own companies, because there's, it seems like there's big systemic goals and values that are tough to get around unless they're addressed head on. Well, you have a couple of really giant players within the system, right? Um, particularly, I mean, you do have to dif- differentiate between high fashion 
kind of mass fashion, right? Or high street fashion. Those are sort of like, if you're talking about H&M and Zara versus like Louis Vuitton, those are two very different things. They have different issues and they have different environmental impacts, mm-hmm. you know, or Gucci, for example, you know, which is like leather. If you have a leather goods house, it's different than having, you know, Patagonia, for example. So, you know, if we're talking about high fashion, you've got a couple of very big players like LVMH or Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, which is the biggest luxury group in the world, you know, which owns over 75 brands mm-hmm. between beauty, spirits, and um, perfume and clothing, you know. But so if they do something, that is a big chunk of the industry that just did something, mm-hmm. you know, same with then caring, you know, which also owns a number of fashion brands or Richemont, which owns a lot of watch and jewelry brands, you know, for, for those sort of giant players to shift an environmental profile they will shift the industry. So I can't help but ask, do you see things, are they, are they shifting? Yeah. 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 I mean, they're scared of talking about it, you know, a long time ago, probably around 2010, the world wildlife Federation did a, um, a paper, which they've since disavowed, (laughs) but it was the first kind of ranking of publicly traded luxury brands, according to CSR categories and they had 50 different categories there was very little public information at that time the brands didn't want to talk mm-hmm. and the author graded each of the companies according to how they did and i think no one got over a b minus mm-hmm. and a bunch of them failed and partly they failed because they didn't give any information at all and one of the ones that i think, I think maybe they got a d was tiffany mm-hmm. and so I, I wrote a story about it tried to get in touch with all these companies. Most of them did not want to talk to me. Then they got upset after I wrote the story. And I said, well, you didn't talk to me. <laughs> and I said, well, no, come talk to us now. We want to talk to you now. We'll just tell you about it. So I went to talk to the CEO of Tiffany. And um, he was a terrific man named Mike Kowalski at the time, who actually was an environmental activist and, in fact, had been arrested in his 20s for protesting and used to take out, like, giant ads in the New York Times against the Pebble Mine when they were still thinking of trying to develop that. And so he he sat me down and told me about their various policies. You know, they they only sourced gold from their own mine in the United States because they could control it. They didn't buy any new emeralds or rubies because they had no way of chasing the supply chain and so on. And I said, well, you know, they didn't buy any coral at all. And I said, well, that's good. You know, why didn't you tell anybody? Mm-hmm. Why don't you publish this stuff? And he said, well, because we know as soon as we stand up and like stick our heads over the parapet, Greenpeace or Sea Shepherd or someone's going to stand back up too and start slinging mud up at us for all the stuff we don't do. And so for a very long time, that was the kind of presiding philosophy in these luxury brands. You know, they were like the big blondes in the room and they they were like, someone is going to just like, you know, criticize me if I try and like pretend to be good about any of this stuff. They've since gotten much better about it. And I think have, have come to the realization that, you know, that that trade-off is worth it. That, you know, saying, hey, we're fallible. This is a process. We're starting. Here's what we're doing. It's not perfect, but it's better, you know, is a more effective way of communicating than just being silent about it. There's also a dynamic of if you only criticize, but don't help, then people are going to respond, like they're going to feel, uh, they're going to shame me. And to me, it's kind of like you can tell people that um, smoking is bad for you. And that's probably right. But you also have smoke enders that is like helping you, you know, create community to to be mutually supportive and say, we understand you're going through these difficult periods. And it's not just like, here's what smoking does to your lungs. It's also 
how do you change your friends? How do you change your lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is part of what I'm trying to fill in myself is to help people who realize, okay, our shareholders, our, our customers, our suppliers, our employees, they're telling us that we got to change, but I don't know what to do. And it sure is easier to be like everybody else and, and wait than to stick my neck out. Is there much of that? Of I, I guess it, it sounds like the companies are, are starting to figure it out that we, as you described the guy Tiffany, it sounds like he was like, okay, we have to be confident. We, we'll take our lumps, but there's not a third party who's also you know, like the personal trainer, the person who doesn't just say that you have to change, but walk you through the change. Well, I mean, they all have sustainability executives now. I mean, they have big departments now, you know, most of whom are actually like genuinely embedded throughout the companies. Almost a thing of third party. I, I mean, once you're in a company, your, your perspective is not from outside the company. And so, and also I would think that there'd be an industry-wide, this is the entrepreneur in me, I guess, kind of thinking of, of an opportunity for people to help a whole industry in something that any one of them might not be able to see. I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, there are indexes of companies that include fashion companies in terms of their sustainability rankings that are now, you know, relatively well-respected. There are coalitions, like there's the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. I mean, there's, there's a lot of these groups. I don't think there aren't any. Okay. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. You talked at the beginning that you said this is something that you, it's, it's a big issue. It's a generational issue. Some would argue a lot more than just generational. And what does the environment mean to you? What does responsibility mean to you? Because it sounds, am I right? That it's like, it's, it's deeply personally important for you, even if it wasn't just a big issue in the world. I think it means thinking really hard about everything you buy, you know, and valuing it and taking care of it and appreciating it and keeping it. Well, that's what to do. I mean, where does that come from? What, no, what's, I think that's not what to do. It's how to think about it. It's different. Do you mind clarifying like how to think about? Like what you already own, you know? Like it has value and you should appreciate it and take care of it. If you take care of these things, if you, and you value these things, then you will change your impact on the environment. What difference does that make? Probably very little. <laughs> well, what I mean is I think that you might but be taking for granted that showers for under five minutes, right? I mean, it's like those things are not going to meaningfully move any number. I think you might be taking for granted. I have asked a lot of people, like, what does the environment mean to them? And it's different for everyone. And it's not to, the how you buy, how you shop, how you get rid of things affects the world. What's it affecting and how? What, like, why bother with these things? I mean, some people, it's a matter of pollution. Some people, it's a matter of, of retaining the forests and streams. And I'm curious for you. I mean, for me, it's really just a mark of respect. It's a mark of respect for the people who made these objects you know, which I think is really important for the people who will come after these objects, you know, who might inherit them and for the people around me. So it's the respect 
for people? Yeah, the people I, the community I share this space with. The space meaning the earth. The earth, the, my, you know, my work, whatever. I mean, the, the sort of concentric rings, I guess, as you go out, my family. So what would be disrespect? I mean, is it, is it, you're not hurting them? You're not, no, I you're think, not paying I, for someone I think, to, like, I think conscious choice and respect for the objects around you is just our really good values. I hope my children have them. Okay. I, to me, respect is, um, it feels, if I respect them, does that mean that I treat them better? Do, if I, I don't yeah, hurt I mean, them? If, or? If, someone, if, something, if someone makes, you know, if, you're, if your kid makes something for you and you're like, oh, that's nice, and then you throw it out, what does that say to them about how you feel about the thing they just gave you? Right? I think you, you appreciate the things that you have. So it's a matter of appreciation of what you have, of respecting others, of how you make the others feel. I feel like when you're saying respect for people around you, some of the people are people you're not going to actually directly interact with, like physically, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they're going to be the people who are either on the supply end, they're working long hours, or they're dealing with hazardous chemicals. And then on the, after Mm -hmm. you use it, there's going to be people who are dealing with the waste. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be the people that, you're, you you mentioned your family; they're going to be close, and that's going to be more direct of, of what you wear and how you appear, or how they appear. It sounds like a very human, direct. For me, it tends to be I like I had to think of, of of trees and oceans and things like that. But for you, it sounds like it's much more a human, direct, human to human interaction. Yeah, human to human, but also like landfill. You know, I'd rather not contribute too much to that. Okay, just trying to get a feel. I'm in territory that's not my usual territory. I'm very interested in learning more. My speech is very halting, and I feel like it's because I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm in an area that I'm not used to talking about this, and I'm afraid of saying something that would make me sound stupid. Not sound stupid, but I'm out of my territory. It, <laughs> how can I learn more about this? How can I become less halting? Oh, God, they all have a million reports on their websites. <laughs> well, yeah, that would give me more facts. I feel like it's it, there's like a cultural, I don't know, maybe it's just talk to more people like you. and become more comfortable with them or more get more experience? I mean, I think it depends what you want to learn about, right? Because there's the, like, the manufacturing side of this, which is very specific and sort of material and, and science-oriented, right? Like the, how do you actually, like production, like the, the actual creation of fabrics, hmm. right? And treating it and stuff. And then there's the design side and then there's the purchasing side. I don't even know where to begin. I, to me, it's, I like to work with where the influential people who are setting, whether intentionally or not, setting the values that most of the others follow. That's generally where I try to work. Uh-huh. Well, those people should just wear clothes twice or <laughs> 10 times. At least, at least more than once. Yeah. Unless they're borrowing them, in which case, okay. They could trade them around and have a little ring. Like, oh, who's wearing it this time? Yeah. Well, I think I'll wrap up and ask, is there anything I didn't think to ask that I should have, that I didn't uh, bring up that could have been, or anything you want to say directly to the listeners? I mean, my, the, the one thing that I keep trying to get brands to do, which I have totally failed at, is kind of what Patagonia does. I, as I strongly believe, this really isn't for listeners unless there are people in fashion companies listening, mm-hmm. that every company should take their own products back, mm-hmm. you know, that you should stand behind what you make to the extent that when somebody is done with wearing something, you know, instead of selling it on eBay or 
the real real or you know one of the million other fashion resale sites that have now sprung up you could bring it back to the brand it would be better take it back to the brand you know have them give you i don't know ten dollar gift certificate or something for it and then they give it to you know a bunch of kids in a room from parsons or fit Mm -hmm something and are like okay take this apart and make me something new with what's salvageable from it but that also means that when they're making something they have to think about how they unmake it because one of the biggest problems with recycling fashion products right now is that so many of them even if they have some sort of you know biodegradable component to them also have like a giant chunk of hardware attached to them or you know something like embedded in them or like spangles sewn on top of them which means that actually you can't recycle it because you have to take it apart. And mm-hmm. if you can't take it apart easily, it's never going to happen. So from the very beginning, designers have to think about how things get sort of undone and make it easy. And then they should be able to take them back and remake them into something with the component parts to be new. And then you could resell that so that you have ideally a life cycle for a product until it literally can't be used again, in which case then it can become like carpeting or, mm. you know, or food for microbes or something. Yeah, that, I, that to me is my like ideal next step in fashion. I was speaking to Randy. He's at Under Armour, formerly from Patagonia. Mm-hmm. And he thinks this way. And he's like, and he also points out that when you think this way, the first thought, the whole company is like, are you nuts? We can't do that. And then right. if you stick with it, then the mindset shifts and you start like what seems impossible from one set of values from another set of values is a constructive way of, of thinking of new. And he said that every time they've done it, what they've come up with is, you know, Oh, now they can't mix certain fibers together because once you mix them, you can't separate them. Right. Right. But then you start and they're like, if we do what you say, we can't sell this thing that's selling very well. And he says, well, okay, but then what? And then they come up with all these things and this does sell better than the original thing. And which could be just coincidence, but it sounds from him, it's happened enough times that it's, uh, I think he's gotten the idea that if they keep, and he's been doing it a lot longer than I've, mm. I mean, he's been doing it for decades, that it works out. It's more sustainable. Or, uh, sorry, it's more, it may be more sustainable, but it's more, um, from a team perspective, it, it makes a team more effective what they do, the designers. I mean, I, I floated this idea once to the head of a giant luxury brand, and he'd said, no, it's impossible. You know, A, it's too complicated. We don't have the systems. And also like, how would you get the products from all our like millions of far-flung stores back to, you know, like central design hub? It would like be too carbon intensive. And I was like, we're the head of a giant global luxury brand. You can figure this one yeah. out. How did having more resources make, make you less able? <laughs> you know, I pick up a piece of garbage. Well, for years, I've been picking up at least one piece of garbage every day off, you know, litter. And now with, with the pandemic, it's more like 20, 30 a day just because I'm, like I would step on them. Otherwise it's so much. And I had this idea. I'm, I, I have not actually done this, but what there's like a lot of, of McDonald's of Starbucks of single use bottles, Dunkin' Donuts. There's tons of, so I, I just pick it up and put it in the nearest trash can. Someday I'm going to do this. I, I haven't done it yet. I'm going to pick up a thing from Dunkin' Donuts. I'm going to open the Dunkin' Donuts door. I'm just going to throw it in the store and walk past. This is having to deal with, it's the principle you're talking about. McDonald's, if McDonald's had to deal with all of just speaking of the consumer stuff, if they dealt with all the packaging, I think that's Coca-Cola, Gatorade, you know, I think they'd solve some problems pretty quickly. But now I've gone online of saying it now. If, if it catches on, they could be like, Josh, you just <laughs> led people to pollute or uh, not pollute to, um, I don't know. It feels like a vigilante sort of thing. 
But I'd love for companies to start doing it more responsibly in the first place. I'll see if I can. I don't have that much influence. I was going to say, like, maybe I'll get something going. I'll, I'll tell you how it goes. Yeah. But I'll try yeah. to. Tell me how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Vanessa, thank you very much. It was nice to talk to you. Same here. Have a good rest of the day. Well, it looks like there's hope in the industry. As Vanessa said, they have a long way to go, a lot of resistance, and many players are acting in the opposite direction. But I'm also glad to hear Vanessa's personal attention, her thoughtfulness, her interest, all of which sounded heartfelt, thorough, and genuine. At the New York Times, she's at a leverage point of the system, so I suspect she'll have a fair amount of influence, not that she's the only one acting. I like that celebrities are acting, because however small that personal change of one person, they influence others. I believe they can help change culture. That's my strategy on the podcast, is to bring in very influential people Whatever they do, big or small, influences a lot of people. When we feel that other people are in our community, we like to have role models. I'll have to bring in some people from LVMH. If they're scared to talk about it, I'd like to help support them talking about it. I think starting from my process in this podcast can help. That is sharing an environmental value personally, acting on it personally, and sharing the personal results because one person's actions may not be huge, but by starting with what motivates someone, it makes their actions authentic and genuine, and therefore, I believe, accessible. So people want to help, not criticize. They feel like this is someone in my community acting this way. I can too. Everyone else, we are all just as human. It's just as hard for any of us to act. We want others to succeed so that we can follow. Hence, we want to help them, not criticize. I hope to make that catch on so that people don't feel they're sticking their necks out so much as being authentic and genuine so others can follow. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.